welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. I'd like to ask you just to stand uh, in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We have a, a final section of Colossians to move through today. We've been going through it verse by verse for some months now. We come to the end of the, the epistle, and uh, we're going to go from verses uh, 7 to 18. Some wonderful stories of those whose lives were affected by Paul and who affected him, people that were walking with God like we are challenged to. And so... Uh, since we are coming to the end of the book, I want to remind you about what I believe is the, the theme verse of the book, and it is Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. It's one simple but powerful statement. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ, almighty God who now dwells within us. He is the source and the secret to everything the Christian needs. Father, we thank you for the word. Thank you for this journey through Colossians. Bless the final teaching of it now to our hearts as you've done over so many Sundays. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, we do come to the end of this epistle, and uh, you know that the theme of it throughout has been uh, the incomparable Christ as we've just read about him. It was a little church that was young and growing, but it had been an attack by false teachers who said that Jesus was not enough, that re- added religion and rules and revelation were needed. And, and Paul wrote this epistle and sent it back so that they would know that there is no one like Jesus, and when they have Jesus, they have everything they need. He's incomparable. Well, now the message in Colossians has come to a close. Paul has filled this epistle with marvelous teaching in the first two chapters about the greatness of Christ and how to counter false teaching against him. Then in chapter 3, about the greatness of Christ in us and how he lives out his life through us in the actual, in real life. And into chapter 4 now, he brings some closing thoughts and he's finished his practical application in chapter 4, verse 6. And now he moves into a section of farewell and reminder. And he talks about 10 different people. Paul did not minister alone, as gifted as he was. He ministered with and by the grace and through the encouragement of so many people. And here, in his final greetings, as he often did, he talks about some of the people that were surrounding him in Rome at that time. Remember, Paul had been placed in in chains. He was in house arrest at that time in Rome. He didn't know the outcome of his arrest and trials. And there were some believers that were in Rome at that time, many of whom had come to the Lord through his influence and ministry long distance, who were ministering to him. And some of these people were those Roman Christians. Others were back at Colossae where this epistle was going to go. And he writes some words, special words to them. In all, there were 10 lives, people living out the doctrine that Paul taught in the epistle to the Colossians. And they're named here. 
Their personal lives are talked about here. Their ministries, and for one or two, some of their struggles and challenges. You know, through all the years of my ministry, I've met folks that uh, have told me, you know, it'd be so exciting to live back in Bible times. It'd be so exciting. I mean, they, they, they kind of think that the Spirit was working in bigger ways, and they think that Christians had bigger faith. Everything was like, like in a movie. It was all larger than life. Well, I can guarantee you it wasn't. And uh, folks then are like folks now. Believers are believers. And, you know, it might be exciting to live in Bible times, but there was always a risk if you were living in Bible times because if you were living in Bible times, you did risk having your life described in the Bible's lines, okay? <laughs> and that can be a... That, that's an everlasting proposition because this word was inspired of the Spirit, and now we have it. And for 2,000 years, if you're mentioned in this book, people read about your life. And uh, it's filled with life stories. In fact, I have two volumes in my library by Dr. Herbert Lockyer, uh, the expert on biblical characters, and there's two books, All the Men of the Bible and All the Women of the Bible, together 800 pages and thousands of notations and, and uh, little mini biographies of what the Bible says about thousands and thousands of people. Now, as I was using that as a resource this week to, to study this text, I realized, you know, that in this whole collection of thousands of people mentioned in the Bible, there's some real spiritual royalty, and then there's some also some real spiritual wrecks. And all through their lives, they could be the determining factor as to whether they're going to be spiritual royalty and with a, with a great spiritual remembrance remembered well or have their kind of spiritual wreckage recorded. And... Uh, I think that's the, tr the truth for all of us. I mean, you think back. If you wanted to live in Bible times, or if the Bible was still being written today, ask yourself this question silently. Given where your spiritual life is right now, would you want your life enshrined in the Bible right now? <laughs> and however God would... You know, I wouldn't. This is a somber remembrance, and everybody... At some point, their life ends, and you leave behind what I would call a spiritual remembrance. And, and these words kind of capture the, the spiritual remembrance of 10 people that were, some of them we only know from this one passage. And it's been an interesting to look at them. We're going to look at these 10 lives today people that were there ministering to Paul in his Roman imprisonment, and those in Colossae. And as we do, I want you to look at their lives and think about where you are with the Lord and draw teaching out of this about how you might leave a greater spiritual remembrance of yourself. Because though your name is not going to be written in the Scripture, the Scriptures are complete and we have them today, it will be written in the spiritual memory of others around you, non-believers around you, sons and daughters around you, and others it's a chance for us to tune up our own spiritual biography, sort of. And that's how I looked at it, to improve your own spiritual remembrance. So we'll walk very briefly through the ten names. And I'll do two things. I'll tell you just a, a little bit about each life, and then I'm going to put in a sentence the lesson that I drew from it in my study this week that has helped me build up my spiritual biography. So here we go. 
We begin in verse 7. The first of the ten was a man named Tychicus. Look at verse 7. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you about all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Stop there. Tychicus. We'll talk about the life and draw a lesson. What about his life? Well, his name meant fortunate, and it was a pretty common name in the empire at that time, the Roman Empire, but he was an uncommon person. Tychicus was a long-standing disciple of Paul, and he had been with Paul through many, many highs and lows, many battles, and he had kind of become a soul mate of Paul. He thought like him, prayed like him. He had uh, been converted at, at a point in Paul's ministry where he began to follow Paul on his second missionary journey went all the way through that with him. And then he went down with Paul to Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem along with Paul. Paul went there to take an offering to the the believers in Jerusalem who were going through a famine at the time. And Paul wanted to build a bridge between the Jewish Christians who still were holding on to a lot of their Jewishness and, and the Gentile Christians that Paul was called to because there was not full unity between the two. And so Paul brought this financial gift as an offering of unity. And well, everything went backwards down in Jerusalem. And uh, angry Jews at that time turns Paul's visit into a riot. And Paul was falsely imprisoned, falsely accused. And for several years, Paul's ministry was stopped as he had to go from jail to jail and defend himself time after time. And Paul was jailed first in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea, then he was put on a prison ship and sent all the way to Rome. And there was a guy who hung with him through all of that. In fact, there are two guys. You'll meet another one of them later. The guy that hung with him and stayed with him through all of that was Tychicus. There at the Jerusalem riot, there through all the imprisonments and false trials and everything else, on the prison ship apparently, and now he had gone to Rome, and uh, he was with Paul, ministering to Paul, visiting him every day while Paul was under house arrest. Now, Paul uh, had written this epistle to the Colossians, and he needed someone to take it back to the Colossians. And Tychicus was chosen, and that's why he's listed first. Tychicus was not only going to visit the Colossians and tell them all about what Paul was doing, he was going to have the epistle to the Colossians with him. And when an epistle came from an apostle, how about that for a word turn? We got an epistle from an apostle. Well, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a third word. Anyway, the church would gather. And that would be read aloud to all the church, and then a copy would be made of it, and that same epistle would be then sent to all the other churches, and they could make their copies, and thus they had the teaching of the apostles, and later uh, we, we have our own copy, don't we? So Tychicus was chosen to take the epistle to the Colossians, and many Bible teachers believe, and I do too, that he also had another important epistle that was also written during Paul's first imprisonment, the epistle to the Ephesians. Now, my opinion, other than the epistle to the Romans, the epistle to the Ephesians is the second most important 
uh, epistle in the New Testament because it has the greatest teaching about the, the depths of salvation a- after Romans and the beauty of the church. And it completes so much teaching about what the church is. And so Tychicus had two epistles kind of stowed away in his back backpack. And Paul chose him to go and, and he went. Now, this was not an easy journey. It was a thousand miles, essentially. And uh, Tychicus would have had to leave Rome, go across the breadth of Italy to to the Adriatic side, go down to a seaport in the south part of Italy. Then he would have to get on a ship and sail across the Adriatic Sea. Then he would have to go by land again and cross the mainland of Greece. Then he would have to come to, to another port and get on another ship and sail the Aegean Sea. And then when he made landfall there uh, at Miletus, he would have to walk many, many miles up one of the steepest valleys in, in that area, the Lycus River Valley, through the city of Laodicea and finally to Colossae. It was a long and difficult journey, but he did it. And so that's the the place that he has. And he he carried an epistle with him, but he also carried the heart of Paul. He says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose because he knows me so well. He'll be able to tell you how I am and he'll encourage your hearts. Quite a remarkable guy. I was looking at that life and and I asked myself the question, What would our Christian life be like today if Tychicus had either given up or given in on that long journey? You think about it. Hundreds and hundreds of miles in a Christian hostile world over land and sea by himself. It's possible he could have given up. This is a little bit too long. I I just don't have the strength to get through it. Or he might have given in because he probably had a family. He had another life. He had an everyday life that he continually sacrificed. And perhaps he might have given in to the desire to finally go back to his family and just not completed the mission. If he hadn't, you and I wouldn't have had the months of blessing that Colossians has poured into our hearts. And the whole church would not have the clarity of the great book of Ephesians about the depths of salvation why I thought that, that I'm so glad he finished the journey, aren't you? And so what's the lesson from his life? I put it in this phrase. I learned in my study about Tychicus, if I want to finish well, I need to be faithful to what God gives me to do because you never know what may be in the balance. That's the lesson from his life. Be faithful to what God gives you to do. You never know what may be in the balance. Tychicus had no idea that the two epistles he held would be so full of majesty and that all those churches would need them and that this church would need them. But he didn't give up or in. He kept going. Good man. Who's the next? Take a look at the uh, verse uh, as we go through in verse 9. With him... Also, I, I, forgive me, I misspoke. He didn't go alone. He had somebody coming with him. And his name was Onesimus. And he is called a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. One of you means that Onesimus had been, had been part of the, he'd grown up in Colossae. He was part of that environment. Colossae being the city where the church of, Col- of the Colossians was, of course. But now Onesimus is in Rome. What's the deal, and what do we know about him? First, the life, then the lessons. The lesson, what do we know about his life? Well, his name meant profitable. And I find this both, uh, well, 
kind of ironic in a way. He was profitable because he was born a slave. He was actually a unit of profit for a slave owner. Onesimus was a slave, and he belonged to a a man in Colossae named Philemon. If any of you know your New Testament, is there a New Testament book called Philemon? Yeah, it was written to Philemon. Philemon, this Christian man, and it was written because Onesimus was his slave, and Onesimus was angry at his his life condition. He was a non-believer at the time, so he stole something, we believe, from Philemon, and he ran away. And he ran long and hard because if you were a slave and you ran away from your master and anybody caught you and proved it, you were immediately executed. So he ran long and hard in the other direction. And he ran a thousand miles from Colossae across the Aegean, across the Adriatic, across Italy, all the way to Rome. And he wanted to get lost among the two million people in Rome and start a new life and hope nobody ever found out that he was a runaway slave. Well, in the two million people milling around in Rome... Onesimus just happened to meet somebody who was influenced by the Apostle Paul, and somehow he was brought to Paul there in his Roman imprisonment, and Paul led him to Jesus. And Paul could say, he is a faithful and beloved brother now. So this slave named Onesimus, on the run from a a man in Colossae named Philemon, ran to Rome and got redeemed. And he also repented. And he said, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'll do. And if you want me to go back, I'll go back. And interesting twist is Philemon, his master, had become a believer too. In fact, Philemon was very wealthy, and it's possible that the church at Colossae met in his house. And so this all began to come together, and uh, Paul put them back in touch through the epistle to Philemon, And he basically said, listen, I know he left you a runaway slave, but now he's returning as a willing slave, but he's also a brother. Take him back. He's coming with Tychicus. And you know what? Onesimus was received back. Philemon, instead of exerting his right to take the life of Onesimus, forgave him in Christ, brought him back into his home, And he brought him back into the church because he wasn't just a slave anymore. He was a brother. And they went on together. And there's an interesting note, and I don't give it full weight, but there's an interesting segment in a letter from the first century, early into the second century, rather, by an individual named Ignatius. He was a pastor of the church at Smyrna. You know that from the book of Revelation. And he wrote these words in a letter. Since then, in the name of God, I received your entire congregation. He wrote this to the Colossians. So the Colossian church was still existing many years later. Since then, in the name of God, I received your entire congregation in the person of Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love and your pastor. I beseech you in Christ Jesus to love him and all who are like him. It's possible that that statement by Ignatius, that later church leader, is an indication that Onesimus might have even ended up being the pastor of the Colossian church in the later years. We don't know, but he had a good finish. Onesimus, what do we, we learn? What's the life lesson from him? Don't let your broken past keep you from Christ's beautiful future. If you don't know the Lord, you, you make some missteps, you even commit a crime, 
There's dark marks in your past because you didn't know Jesus. When you come to Jesus, that's all erased. That's under the blood that we sang about today. And don't you think because you have a broken past that you can't have a bright future with Jesus Christ. Onesimus believed he was forgiven. Neat stories, huh? Let's go to the next one. Aristarchus. I'm sure that a few of our newer families with babies have named their son Aristarchus. <laughs> I guarantee you today might be the only time in the United States for some old boy standing up preaching about Aristarchus. You know, a lot of pastors just skip these parts of the Bible, you know. Hmm. What about his life? Well, his name meant good ruler. Good ruler. Who was he? Well, he was actually Jewish. That was his Roman name. We don't know what his Jewish name was. He was a Jewish convert. Take a look at uh, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Farther down, he says in verse 11 about Aristarchus, he was one of the only men of the circumcision. That means he was formerly Jewish among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And this has been a comfort to me, Paul says. So he was Jewish in background, and he was a convert, and he'd been converted in the very early days of Paul's life, very, very early. In fact, on this list, he may have been one of the earliest and longest-term followers of Paul over at least 20 years. Converted in the early days of Paul's ministry, when Paul was still preaching to Jewish audiences, and uh, he stayed by Paul all the way through his journeys, and he too may have been there at the riot in Jerusalem, and he too might have gone from prison point to prison point until Paul finally got to Rome. He might have been on the prison ship too, the one that went down and shipwrecked and bobbing in the sea along with Paul, and he hung with him all the way. And now he was in Rome, and uh, he visited Paul so often that Paul calls him here, my fellow prisoner. <laughs> Aristarchus, as far as we know, wasn't in jail, but he was there every morning. And so it was as if Paul said, he's, he's as here as much as I am. He's my fellow prisoner. What a man of commitment and fellowship. What deep commitment. That was an interesting time for Jewish converts because there weren't that many of them. There were not that many. But he was there. There so often that it was like, he was a prisoner himself. What's the lesson from the life of Aristarchus? Here's how I put it. Be willing to accept a life of suffering with your brothers and sisters for Jesus' sake. So often, people fall away or move away from the Lord because things become difficult. If we only understood, when we walk away from the Lord or start to abandon His church when times get hard... We just tell ourselves, I'm distancing myself from the Lord for a while. I just can't walk the way he wants me to walk. This is too hard. We're not just moving away from the Lord. We're moving away from brothers and sisters. They're in the hard things, and when we move away from them, we are moving away from the, the fellowship, and we're making it one person harder to keep going for all of us. We're going to have to learn this lesson in the days ahead. Aristarchus went through year after year of suffering that was because of Paul. 
Aristarchus could have left any time. None of the Roman rulers had his name on an arrest list, but he didn't leave. He had decided somehow early in his life, I'm going to be willing to accept a life of suffering with my brother Paul and all my other brothers and sisters for Jesus' sake. There are many who follow Christ. There are some who in the scripture desert his cause and his people. He didn't. Maybe he'd made a decision early and settled it. Here's the next. Mark, verse 10, Aristarchus is listed, called the fellow prisoner of of Paul. In fact, he might have been sitting in the room while Paul was dictating this letter, and so Aristarchus was sitting there. Paul said, oh, Aristarchus is with me. He greets you. That's how close he was. And somebody else, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you in Colossae, welcome him. Who is this? Mark. What about his life, and what is his lesson? Well, his name, Mark, meant hammer. But in the early days of his Christian life, if you know anything about him, he was anything but a hammer for God. (laughs) Because we know that uh, he was an early convert, a very early convert of Paul, very early in the ministry, or perhaps he was a convert of his uncle. His uncle was Barnabas. What does Barnabas' name mean? Son of encouragement. Barnabas was one of those guys that loved on everybody and could disciple the slowest learner because he never quit on people. He went out and got Paul and brought him into the ministry after Paul was isolated and didn't know what the future was for him. And Barnabas may have led Mark, his, uh, his, what would that be, his nephew, his cousin, his cousin. And so how all this worked, he led him to Christ and discipled Mark, and he believed in him so much that he said to Paul, when we go out on our first missionary journey, let's take Mark along. And Paul agreed because he trusted Barnabas. But a few months into the missionary journey, uh, Mark, instead, unlike Tychicus, Mark gave up and gave in. And he said, I'm not going any further. This journey's too hard. The, 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 the journey's too long. The, the rigors are too much. And I'm afraid of what might be coming. So he put his hand to the plow and looked back, didn't he? And so he left them. And he went back. Now, second missionary journey some years later, um, Barnabas said, well, we'll go again. How about taking Mark again? And you remember that story. Paul told Barnabas, nothing doing. He quit us the first time. It'll be even harder this time. I don't want him with us. And Barnabas believed in Mark, and, and Paul suspected Mark, and they had this division that led to a, an, an end of their working relationship for quite a while. And so that was it. He turned back, and that was what he was known for, and and this became a big deal in the church, and it was known to the church. Now, Bible scholars believe that Barnabas and Paul went on, and uh, Mark stayed back, and interestingly enough, he may have found his way to Jerusalem, where Peter was still ministering, and Peter took Mark under his wing. And Peter ministered to and discipled Mark over those years to the point where in 1 Peter he calls him uh, a beloved and useful and a, a brother. And, and so uh, years pass, Mark gets discipled, Mark learns how to stand firm. And the long, story, the long story short is Mark became useful in the church. He became a partner with the Apostle Peter in his ministry. And years later now, Mark 
made the journey to Rome. And even harder and more dangerous times, Mark left and came to Rome. And he was useful to Paul. In fact, in 2 Timothy, about six years after this, in Paul's second imprisonment, when Paul was facing death and did die, Mark was asked for by Paul. Paul said, if you can find Mark, send him to me, for he is useful. Paul says here, hey, if Mark comes through sometime soon, you've received instructions. He's no longer somebody who walked away. He's now a faithful brother. So if he comes to you, welcome him. That's the story. So uh, Mark went on to even greater youthfulness because later, 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 after his relationship with Peter, he took everything Peter told him about the life of Jesus and he wrote something called the Gospel of Mark. Tradition tells us that he also went on and died a martyr's death. That is one of the greatest ministry comeback stories in the Bible. What's the lesson from his life? Don't let an early ministry failure become your final ministry finish. Since the call on your life, you might have been involved in professional ministry or you might have been a leader in a church and counted on like Mark was, and yet you had an early failure. You fell back. And it's bothered you all your life and you feel like you're branded with it and nothing can change that. Oh, no, he can change anything. We all have failures in ministry. All of us who've been in it long enough have fallen out at some point or dearly wished we could. But God can restore that. Don't let an early ministry failure, if you're a leader, if you're a teacher, if you're, you're a pastor, become your final ministry finish. We've got to move now. Here's the fifth. So there's Aristarchus and Mark in verse 10. Now we go to verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice. That's the only statement about this man. What about what his life and his lesson? What was the meaning of his name? Well, it was Yeshua in in Hebrew, and it meant uh, Jehovah is salvation. It was the same name given to our Lord. Big name to live up to, wouldn't you say? This means he was Jewish, and in fact, he is somebody that Paul says in verse 11 was one of the men of the circumcision. So he was Jewish by birth, Jewish by training, and he came to embrace Christ as Messiah. He was also, however, given a nickname. It says, and Jesus, or Yeshua, from his Aramaic name, or Hebrew name, who is called Justus. What does Justus mean? Righteous one. Now, you know, your parents give you your name before they know how you're going to turn out. Your friends give you a name because they've seen how you've turned out. <laughs> his friends gave him the name Righteous. I think that tells you everything you knew about this guy. He was a man of great character. Now, he was a Jewish convert that didn't abandon Paul. And Paul says, people like Justice, look at the verse, he is among my fellow workers. He's one of the only ones of the Jewish nation left, and he has been a comfort to me. End of verse 11. The word comfort there means a soothing oil over a wound. 
What was the wound? Well, you know, Paul was Jewish and he loved the Jewish people. He had persecuted Jewish Christians before he was a believer. He says in the book of Romans that I live to see Jewish people find Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, I would wish my own self accursed if my people would trust Jesus. But the farther you go in Paul's ministry, the fewer Jews believed. And finally, when Paul got to Rome for this imprisonment, he reached out to the Jews in that city and they rejected his message. And Paul said, this breaks my heart, but I'm going to have to go to the Gentiles. So the Jewish nation rejected the gospel more and more in those years. And so it was rare for somebody that was Jewish to decide for Jesus. And it was even rarer for them to suffer for Jesus and stay with Paul and justice or Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus here. He stayed with it. Quite a man. What was the lesson from his life? Live to gratify the heart of your spiritual mentors, not to grieve them. Justice was very fortunate. He had the Apostle Paul in his life. And Paul poured so much richness into this. Wouldn't you have liked to have had the Apostle Paul as your mentor? Yeah. Plus plus a negative. Greatest theological mind on the planet. Mightiest heart for God. Also, biggest target. Think about the Apostle Paul. He had been given the greatest revelation by the Lord Jesus Christ about the fullness of the gospel of anybody on planet earth at that time. Early in his ministry, he said, this gospel was revealed to me directly by Jesus Christ. He met the risen Christ, and the risen Christ instructed him on the depths of the gospel and and about the church, and he wrote it out over those years. So there was not one person on planet earth that Satan knew knew more about Jesus and God's plans and God's mysteries and God's church than one guy. And if you want to wipe out the truth and the greatness of the cross, who would you concentrate the hordes of hell on? One guy. Oh, he bore a lot of opposition. And yet he still took Justice under his wing and he mentored him. And so Justice had a great mentor, but he also had a great responsibility. Maybe you've been given a great mentor in your life in past, or a great Bible teacher in your life, somebody that's poured their heart into you and given you a lot of riches and a lot of potential. Hey, you live to gratify the Lord first, but don't forget the others who are looking at your life and who are invested in you. You learn to gratify the heart of your spiritual mentors, not to grieve them. So many people today, like I said, the biggest new trend, particularly among younger uh, people, is to take some time to deconstruct their own faith, and that's the verb that's used. I'm deconstructing. And they believe that when they leave the faith, they're just leaving something by themselves. You never leave the faith by yourself. You damage others with you. You're not just leaving your faith, you're leaving ours. You're leaving the faith of, your, of those that have poured their lives into you. And if you're a young person today and you're trend, toying around with just deconstructing your faith, because it's quite frankly, it's a trend thing to do. And it's difficult, of course, to, to live for your faith in this collapsing culture, in this secular world. But uh, don't remember I don't forget, rather, that it's not just your faith, it's ours. And it's the, the faith of those who loved you and poured into you. Don't treat it so cheaply. You think about what you're doing. Here's the sixth. Epaphras. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What about his life and his lesson? Well, it says he was one of them. That meant he was from Colossae. His name meant charming. And he ended up being that because he ended up being a spiritual leader and a loving pastor. How about that? He was a convert. He probably had gone to Ephesus earlier in Paul's ministry when Paul was preaching and teaching there for three years and he had traveled there. Ephesus was about 70 miles away from Colossae. It was the big city in the region. And he heard about this spiritual teacher named Paul. He was drawn by the Spirit to go there. He was not saved when he got there, very saved after he heard the Apostle Paul. And he stayed and was part of Paul's discipleship school for months or maybe a year. We don't know. And then he went back to his old hometown, Colossae. And Paul said, when you go back, plant a church. And that's what he did. So who started the church at Colossae? It was Epaphras. A convert turned church planter. Well, what was he doing in Rome instead of Colossae? Well, the false teaching problems had gotten so bad in Colossae that, that Epaphras was not trained and experienced enough to know how to handle it. So he left the church in the hands of other leaders and he went a thousand miles to Rome from Colossae through all that tough journey to go to see Paul and say, Paul, this church I've planted is in deep trouble. I need wisdom from you about how to pastor them, how to teach them against all this false teaching. And, and Paul said, I'll do better than that. I'll teach you personally. And then I'll also put it all in an epistle that we're going to call the epistle to the Colossians. I'll give it to Tychicus and he'll take it back. But Epaphras said, I want to learn more. I want to stay with you a little longer so I can pastor them better. So Epaphras stayed. So Epaphras was the pastor of the church in Colossae. Tychicus gets sent back with the letter. Are you confused? Yep. Tychicus gets sent back with the letter. Epaphras stays a little longer. And he wants to be there with Paul. Just a, just a neat story. Now, Epaphras is there. And what did Paul note the most about Epaphras' life as a pastor? It wasn't his preaching. It was his prayer life. He says, every day Epaphras is still with me and I watch him in prayer. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What a pastor. That's what pastors care about if their heart is held by God. They don't care about external appearances or, or, or dynamic programs or, or, or momentary numbers or any of that stuff, the brick and mortar of ministry. What they care about is that their people will stand and mature and live in the will of God. And Epaphras wasn't there in person, but he was sure there in prayer. And I'll tell you right now, they were standing because he was kneeling. That's the bottom line. And as a pastor, I'm humbled by that because my prayer life for you is not what it should be. This man is a great example to me. It wasn't just jotting through a prayer list. Notice he struggled. I think the Greek word is agonize. What a pastor. What do we learn from him? What's the lesson? Here it is in my words, make your Christian life more about others and less about you. That's where he was at. Make your Christian life more about others and less about you. That will probably dictate what kind of prayer life we have. How about the seventh? He's familiar to us. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. We know a little bit about him, don't we? 
writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. What did his name mean? I think this is wonderful. Light giver. Wouldn't you say that the author of the Gospel of Luke to the whole secular Roman world and the book of Acts, light giver. Huge impact. Now, he was a a Greco-Roman convert, non-Jewish, of course, but part of Roman society, but he was educated in the Greek culture and he became a physician and he was very successful in his practice and very wealthy. And yet, he left it. And by Paul's second missionary journey, we find Luke suddenly arriving. He left the church at Antioch where he was very comfortable and very successful and he started to go with Paul. That's interesting about Paul, the Lord Jesus, when Paul was saved... He said, you go and baptize him and you tell him and show him all the things that he is going to suffer. That's powerful. Somehow Paul knew by revelation of Jesus all the suffering he would go through. Oh my goodness. Would you still go through it if you knew it? Most of us wouldn't. I just have to think about the moment that uh, Luke probably came up to Paul at the church there before Paul was going out on his second missionary journey. He says, hey, by the way, I've had a leading of the Lord and I'm leaving my practice behind and I'm going to help fund your journey. Paul's going, great. And he said, also, I'm going to be with you as your personal physician because of all the things that are coming. All your suffering. How'd you like to be called to be the personal physician to the most persecuted person on the planet? There it is. (laughs) He must have had an interesting conversation. He went through the missionary journeys of Paul, both imprisonments, and we know from 2 Timothy that he was one of the few that stuck to Paul's side all the way to his death because Paul said as he faced the executioner in 2 Timothy 4, only Luke is with me. Hmm. What's a lesson? Many from him, but here's one. Don't let the attraction of your professional life outshine the importance of your ministry life. You think about it. If Luke had put his professional life before his ministry life and had bargained his way out of the call of God at that crucial moment, what would have Paul's life have been like? What would he have missed? And what would we be without? The book of Acts, the gospel of Luke. Now, I know God would have filled in all the white spaces in his sovereign way, but what on the human plane... Demas is the next. We're going to wrap it up here shortly. Demas is probably famous to a lot of people too for exactly the opposite reason that Luke is because we know that Demas experienced spiritual shipwreck. I told you, you can be spiritual royalty or spiritual wreck and we know Demas, don't we? What about his life? (laughs) The name with the name of Demas meant popular. (laughs) And if you know about the way he ended up leaving the ministry because he wanted the glitz and the enjoyment of of worldly life, that name was prophetic, wasn't it? He started well. He was a convert. We don't know of who, probably of Paul. And, and you got to give him credit. He stayed all the way through Paul's first imprisonment, and he was there at that time. And, and uh, he held out uh, and was faithful, but never fully so until the second imprisonment about six years after this, Paul said, Demas having loved this present world, has left me and gone to Thessalonica, which was Damas' hometown. So he left the gospel, he left the ministry, he left persecution, and he went back to his old life, and he wanted all 
the ease and the glory of it. Because he found out that most of the time when you pinged Paul's cell phone, the little cursor ended up showing where Paul was that day, and it said city jail. He didn't like that. He didn't just want to avoid the suffering. He wanted to regain the treasure that he had in his old days. And so, you know, Jesus said, where your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Damas never did that math. He never understood that. And So what's the lesson from his life? Settle your treasure early. Settle your treasure early because there will be times later in your Christian life when it will call you back. Last two. Now we get to uh, a woman, the only woman in the list. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, which was a, a city and a church mentioned in the book of Revelation. It was near Colossae. And to Nympha and the church in her house. What about her life and her lesson? Her name meant bride. She was a convert of Paul, probably along the same time that Epaphras met the Lord and And uh, in Laodicea, she was known as, we think, a very wealthy person who was very generous, and she opened her large house so that the church could meet there. Most of, well, all of the churches at that time were house churches, and they met in the largest house available, usually owned by the wealthiest believer, and she had extended her house. So we know she was generous, and she was committed to the gospel and a church met in her house. What's the lesson from her life? Let your material blessings become gifts, not God's, for the gospel's sake. She's an example of that. And lastly, Archippus. Paul writes, verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, like I said, it would go and be read among them. They'd make their copy. And then he said, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So send my original on to Laodicea, where Nympha has her house church, and let it be read there. And then verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Archippus at the last. Who was he? What about his life and lesson? Well, his name had really no relation to his life. It was master of the horse. So there it is. Now, we think that he was a leader, maybe even an elder, at the Colossian church, because he was back there, and, and he said, you read this letter, and you also take Archippus aside and say to Archippus, Paul says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. So we know he was a leader. He might have been an elder in the church at Colossae. Paul later in Philemon also calls him a fellow soldier, so he was a good man. He was committed, but he wasn't fully committed to his ministry. He was backing off Why? Well, the church at Colossae was a young church. It had been disrupted by false teachers. The senior pastor Epaphras had gone away to Rome to get more help. And so Archippus might have been there as an elder or among a few elders alone without the pastor there to help put it all together. And he just gets word through the epistle to the Colossians that the pastor Epaphras is going to stay in Rome longer. And so his ministry commitment has suddenly gotten extended and there's going to be more pressure. And Archippus has to face whether he's going to stay with it or not. And so Paul anticipates this and he says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Tough position to be in. What's the lesson from his life? Let God himself set the limits of your ministry. You've got to do that all the time if you're in spiritual leadership. You'll tell yourself all the time, I've reached the limit.'" 
And you're going to have to remind yourself through gritted teeth and broken heart, I've got to let God set the limits of my ministry, not me. Well, those are the stories. Now, we come to the end of this epistle whose message is the incomparable Christ. It does end with the real-life stories of those people, some of them nearly forgotten, who were living out the message of Colossians. Nearly all of them seem to be on a path to finish well. They have a good spiritual remembrance, and we are still on the path, and we can determine how we'll finish well. And you might ask, well, how can I do that? I mean, so much has changed in these times, and there's so much rising confusion out there, and I see threats on the horizons for committed believers. Well, you know what? It was the same for them, as I've mentioned to you. The Roman culture was collapsing, collapsing into disorder and corruption and evil. Hate against the faith was rising. False doctrine was surging. It was all the same. But they held to Christ. How did they do it? I close by taking you back to the first chapter, Colossians 1. They had what we have. And what's that? Verse 9 and 10 of Colossians 1. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. They had that, we have that. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's how you leave a great spiritual remembrance. How did they do it? They leaned into the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of Christ that was given to them by the Holy Spirit and now is given to us by the Holy Spirit. This is what they had. This is what we have. This is how they finished. I hope it's how we finish. 